My name is Chris Russi. I'm one of the faculty at the University of Iowa Department of Emergency Medicine. And today we're going to talk about shock. Specifically, we're going to discuss the pre-hospital recognition, the management, and new therapies for this disease entity. This lecture is primarily geared toward uh, our pre-hospital EMS personnel uh, and is ideally a review of this disease entity, how to recognize and manage it. So our objectives today, we're going to review the primary determinants of blood pressure and how to use them to differentiate shock clinically. We're going to review the main types of shock, how to recognize each one of those entities separately. We'll also review the initial pre-hospital treatment. And then at the end of the discussion, we'll talk about newer types of uh, fluids and how they'll be uh, impacting the future to treat hypovolemic shock states. So what determines your blood pressure? When you're thinking of shock, you, you commonly think that your blood pressure is low. Well, there's several key pieces that determine what your blood pressure actually is. One is the heart rate. Uh, it can be slow or it can be fast. Uh, patients that have uh, marked tachycardia may be in uh, cardiogenic shock if their pump is uh, unable to um, move the blood forward because it's moving too fast. The preload or the volume status, how much blood or volume you actually have, if that is low, uh, hence your blood pressure would be low. The systemic vascular resistance, how constricted or dilated the arteries are, the ability of your heart to contract. So all of these four things really make up your blood pressure and people in shock and when we talk about shock, we specifically mean evidence of end organ damage or tissue hypoperfusion. They have a problem with at least one of these items, the heart rate, the volume, the resistance, or the ability to contract with the heart. The definition of shock, as I briefly alluded to, is the acute circulatory failure with inadequate or inappropriate distributed tissue perfusion resulting in generalized cellular hypoxia. So essentially what that means is we see a decrease in tissue perfusion and we develop an abnormal metabolism. A relative decrease in blood pressure with associated end organ damage will also occur uh, under this definition. But it's important to recognize that to have a true shock-like state, you need to have evidence of end organ damage. So we're talking kidney failure, altered mental status, uh, myocardial ischemia in the setting of those other physiologic signs. It's extremely important to recognize and be able to differentiate the four types of shock. And I think they're best described with the plumbing analogy. Um, hypovolemic shock is by and large the most common that we'll see in the trauma patient. And this essentially means that there are no fluid in the pipes, so we are lacking blood volume. Uh, hence, no oxygen carriers, which will lead to inadequate tissue perfusion, and then evidence of end organ damage. Distributive shock is sort of a larger category of several different entities, which include septic shock and spinal shock. Here, the pipes don't work. We lack the ability to constrict our blood vessels, allowing for our blood pressure to remain elevated and uh, uh, perfuse. Cardiogenic shock, the pump has essentially failed the heart. 
lacks the ability to pump the blood forward. And we'll see this with, uh, for example, myocardial infarction. And if this occurs, roughly 40% of the ventricular size needs to be infarcted uh, to create this entity, um, or smaller if the patient already has a poor uh, uh, pump. And then finally, obstructive shock. Um, the pump is essentially stuck. It, your heart, in the relaxation phase or the diastolic phase, brings blood into the ventricles, but here, it can't do that. Uh, and we'll see this in two entities, primarily one, tension pneumothorax, and number two, um, cardiac tamponade. So I think it's best that we go through each of these types of shock and uh, we'll link it with a case scenario. Um, so scenario number one, you're dispatched to a local family practice clinic uh, for a patient with chest pain. You arrive, you've got a 56-year-old gentleman who is diaphoretic and laying on the gurney in the doctor's office. Now remember, you're at the clinic here. They probably lack an EKG. Uh, they don't have a chest x-ray available, nor do they have the ability to run cardiac enzymes or other uh, lab modalities that we would do in an emergency department. Those are the patient's vitals of concern here is that the patient is hypotensive, bradycardic, uh, mildly tachypnic, and the pulse ox with some oxygen uh, is about 95%. Fortunately, they did have the ability to do an electrocardiogram, and the doctor looks at you and says, this looks bad, please take this patient to the emergency department. They hand you the EKG while you're packaging the patient, and this is what the EKG looks like. You'll notice that in leads two, three, and AVF, we've got significant ST segment elevation with reciprocal changes in the anterior uh, leads of the precordium, V1 through V4. So we're concerned about an inferior wall myocardial infarction. So what's going on? Hypotensive, diaphoretic, bradycardic, chest pain. Do we have evidence of end organ damage? Absolutely. The patient is diaphoretic, they're sweating, they're not perfusing. Um, so, what's the clinical disease entity or what type of shock is this? This is cardiogenic shock. And the big causes here are ischemia and myocardial infarction, as I alluded to earlier. You can also see this with a cardiac dysrhythmia. Um, if you lack the ability to pump effectively because of an arrhythmia, cardiomyopathy, uh, or toxicologic causes. Overdose on beta blocker and calcium channel blockers will inhibit the pump action. And then me metabolic causes including profound acidosis which may lead to cardiac dysfunction or arrhythmia as well. But again, the pump here is the cause of the low blood pressure, the patient is bradycardic, and we have evidence of end organ damage because they're diaphoretic. So this person is in cardiogenic shock. We may see tachycardia or bradycardia. Again, um, you don't have to have a slow heart rate to have cardiogenic shock. You can have a marked tachycardia. If you have a poor ejection fraction or lack the ability to effectively move blood forward and the heart is beating too fast, this can create a similar picture. By beating too fast, the heart doesn't allow itself to relax and fill with appropriate volume to push forward and you may see this type of state. 
You may also develop diminished oxygen delivery to the heart muscle, causing inefficient contra contraction and buildup of metabolites. The pump starts to fail. We see diminished blood flow to the periphery. And then, of course, you can have rhythm problems associated with this. So how do we treat it? Well, in the pre-hospital setting, if you were in this setting in the clinic, uh, your main function is, number one, you're going to provide oxygen. We need to get as much oxygen to this patient as possible. If they're developed altered mental status, their ability to respond to you is diminished or maintain their airway is diminished, they may need to be intubated. Fluid challenge. If this is an inferior wall myocardial infarction or what we call a right-sided myocardial infarction, it's vitally important that we get their preload high and you're going to give them a large fluid challenge. Rapid transport by air or ground. Um, some would argue that you may need dobutamine. Uh, however, pressors in the setting of a right ventricular infarction uh, may not be helpful in the pre-hospital setting. And then when they get to the hospital, this person will likely need either fibrinolytics if the, if the receiving facility lacks a cath lab or going to cardiac catheterization. But in the pre-hospital setting, it's going to be A, B, and C, essentially. Um, with the altered mental status, intubate them if they can't maintain their airway, and then provide fluid challenge. If they can take an aspirin and they don't have contraindication to doing it, they have the ability to swallow, they're maintaining their airway, they're communicating with you, I would provide them with an aspirin as well. Okay, scenario two. You're now dispatched to a rural hospital emergency department to transfer a near 80-year-old lady with a urinary tract infection and altered mental status at a tertiary care center. Those are the patient's vitals. You'll notice that she is hyperthermic, so febrile. She's mildly hypotensive. She's tachycardic, her respiratory rate is mildly tachypnic, and she's maintaining her oxygen saturation with two liters. They have this patient on dopamine at five mics per kilo per minute. So what's going on? You have an elderly patient with a urinary tract infection exhibiting signs of end organ damage with her altered mental status. This patient has distributive shock, most likely secondary to sepsis or urosepsis. We'll also see this, as I mentioned briefly before, in a spinal cord injury or also uh, toxicologic causes, calcium channel blockers uh, and nitrates with uh, erectile dysfunction medications um, may cause you the inability to maintain your vascular tone. How do we treat this? Like other entity, we start with our ABC. If they lack the ability to maintain their airway, you may need to intubate the patient, provide fluid challenge, place large bore IVs in the patients, and rapidly transport them to the, to the receiving facility. It's important, if you can, to ascertain the specific cause of the distributive shock and proceed accordingly. Here, we know the lady has a urinary tract infection, so we're presuming that this is secondary to infection. The use of vasopressors in the, in the treatment of distributive or septic shock uh, is early on is controversial now and there's evidence pointing toward using that as a more last resort. Uh, it's, it's vitally important that we maintain their fluid status to um, fill the vascular space prior to instituting uh, vasopressors.
We'll give them fluids, antibiotics, and if necessary, vasopressors for the sepsis. Uh, if the patient has spinal shock, um, phenylephrine, which is an alpha agonist, uh, we will use to maintain their blood pressure, also fluids to maintain their preload. And then appropriate counteragents for whatever poisoning, uh, if that is the etiology. Okay, scenario number three. We're dispatched uh, to a resident's home by 911. When you arrive, you find this 56-year-old female uh, who was severely dyspneic when talking to the dispatcher and now has collapsed. So difficulty breathing now has collapsed. She's unresponsive. Her blood pressure is 85 over 50. You'll note she's hypotensive. She's tachycardic. She's tachypnic and hypoxic. In talking with her family, she just got back from a flight from China, complaining of some lower leg discomfort prior to arriving here in the United States. So what's going on? This is an obstructive shock. As I mentioned before, uh, tension pneumothorax and pericardial tamponade, but we may also see this with a massive saddle pulmonary embolism, causing the inability of the right heart to um, uh, contract. David Bloom, as you remember, uh, reporting for NBC, died in Iraq uh, recently uh, after riding around in the tank for a long time, developed blood clots in his leg and died from a saddle embolism. So how do we treat this? Again, our mainstay is uh, ABCs and then we're going to remove the obstruction. Can we remove the saddle embolism in the pre-hospital setting? No. Uh, however, if you're able to identify that this patient has cardiac tamponade or a tension pneumothorax, then those treatment can be done. Um, patients that have jugular venous distension, marked JVD, that are also hypotensive, we presume in the emergency department that they either have cardiac tamponade or that they have tension pneumothorax. So decompression of the chest, pericardiocentesis for the effusion, and then if they get to the hospital and it's not those two entities and we think this is a pulmonary embolism uh, and they're not in cardiac arrest, uh, going to the cath lab for focused fibrinolytics uh, may occur. But important to remember that obstructive shock in the pre-hospital setting, you can do something about almost immediately if it's secondary to tension pneumothorax or pericardial tamponade with the use of a needle. Okay, scenario number four, you're dispatched to a motor vehicle accident. Uh, a 32-year-old male was unrestrained driver. He starred the windshield. He's got bruising to his anterior abdominal wall. He's pale, he's diaphoretic, and he's very anxious. The abdomen's firm. He's got severe left upper quadrant pain. That's his blood pressure. You'll note he's also tachycardic as well as tachypnic with mild hypoxia. So what's going on with this patient? Fairly straightforward hypovolemic shock. We have bruising to the abdomen wall. He's hypotensive. He's also diaphoretic. This patient is losing blood. Bleeding, bleeding, bleeding. And then other causes that we'll often see in uh, poor third world nations, uh, uh, severe dehydration. This is a killer of, of children in uh, poorer countries. So we get external losses of blood 
either secondary to a penetrating entry or a or GI bleeding or internal hemorrhaging, uh, solid organ injuries. Uh, most commonly injured in uh, blunt trauma are the spleen and the liver. We, almo- we also may see a rupture of an abdominal aortic aneurysm, fractures of the pelvis and the long bones, the humerus, the femurs also will lead to marked hypovolemic shock and severe bleeding. Dehydration, uh, either uh, due to poor third world nations or secondary to burns and severe gastroenteritis. Uh, You'll lose a significant amount of your volume uh, that can put you into this state. History here is essential. Uh, I think with the motor vehicle crash and your physical examination, it's fairly straightforward. The patient may be very weak, lightheaded, confused. We start thinking about the causes. Uh, And number one, in trauma, hypovolemic shock is the most common. Okay, when we talk about hemorrhaging, uh, the American College of Surgeons and the Advanced Trauma Life Support uh, discusses different types of classes uh, for hemorrhages. There's four classes of hemorrhaging. Uh, and class one essentially is where you've lost less than 15% of your blood volume. You'll see minimal tachycardia with these patients. Uh, There's usually no changes to your blood pressure. You're able to maintain your blood pressure fine. A mild tachycardia, if any, and the patient's mental status is fairly normal. So for low percentages of bleeding, you may have subtle, if any, changes to your physiologic parameters. As we move into the class two hemorrhage, however, now we're into about 15 to 30% of your blood has been lost. We'll definitely start seeing tachycardia, unless of course you're a patient that is on beta blockade, calcium channel blockade, uh, that will inhibit your ability to mount a tachycardia. You'll also develop tachypnea. Hypotension here in this may be subtle, if any. Cool, clammy skin, we're starting to see some end organ damage. Uh, diaphoresis, uh, delayed capillary refill may begin to be present, and some slight anxiety. As we move further up, 30 to 40 percent of your blood volume in the class 3 hemorrhaging, you'll notice marked tachycardia. This is where we start to see hypotension. Confusion, agitation, more evidence of end organ damage, especially to the And then class 4, more than 40 percent of your blood has been lost. Severe tachycardia, tachypnea, marked hypotension, cold, pale, diaphoretic skin. The patient may be unconscious. These patients essentially are trying to die. They need massive volume and blood resuscitation with large IVs and done quickly. So the treatment of hypovolemic shock, we begin as we always begin with our critically ill patients. We ensure that they have an airway intact and that they're breathing. We control bleeding as we move on to the C of our exam, of our primary survey, we control the bleeding, if possible, with the direct pressure and splinting of fractures. We place large IVs in the field pre-hospital. If you can place a 14 gauge, 16 gauge, and uh, mount uh, quick crystalloid infusion rapidly, uh, it's vitally important. And then rapid transport by air or ground. For those critical care paramedics that have that level, uh, they may be infusing uh, packed red blood cells. And this is something that we'll be doing for sure for these patients in the emergency department and in the operating suite. 
So let's review. We've talked about uh, decreased preload from blood volume. We've lost blood. This is hypovolemic shock. Our systemic vascular resistance, the inability to maintain that tone, a decreased resistance in those pipes, that's distributive shock. We can see cardiogenic shock from a decreased heart rate. And of course, the inability to contract the heart also leads to cardiogenic shock. Here we're talking probably about a myocardial infarction. And then decreased preload from obstruction or pressure. This is our obstructive shock phenomenon. Low heart rate, we're going to provide chronotropic therapy, try to increase the heart rate low preload. So low fluids in the vascular space, we're going to give fluids or give blood. Poor contractility, secondary to a myocardial infarction. We may try to reperfuse by using intra, um, or excuse me, focused uh, fibrinolytics or cath lab, inotropic therapy, or using an intraortic blue pump, balloon pump to counter uh, pulsate and maximize contractility of the heart. If we have a low systemic vascular resistance in addition to large amounts of fluid resuscitation, we will add on vasopressors eventually if necessary. And then obstructive shock, remember, we want to remove the obstruction. Cardiac tamponade, pericardiocentesis, tension pneumothorax, needle decompression. Okay, some issues that come up with hypovolemic shock resuscitation. We really don't have at our disposal right now an ideal fluid to resuscitate. But if we did, what would it be? An ideal fluid is one that combines volume expansion and oxygen carrying capacity. So we can expand our vascular space. We can carry oxygen to the necessary end organs. We don't have to cross match. There's no risk for infection. It maintains normal composition and stays in the compartments where it's supposed to stay, that being within the vascular space. It's not going to affect other body processes, and it won't interfere with lab tests. This would be the ideal resuscitation fluid if one was available or created. Well, what do we have at our disposal? What do you use right now pre-hospital? And that, of course, is crystalloids. Either normal saline or lactated ringers. These are the first-line choice, and according to uh, ATLS, in hypovolemic shock, you're going to give one to two liters and monitor their vital signs. These are effective, they're available, they have low morbidity, and they're very, very cheap. Outfitted on every ambulance and every air service uh, around. However, they're limited. They're not the ideal fluid for us. Normal saline and lactated ringers, uh, they leak out of the tissues relatively quickly. So for our hypovolemic shock patients uh, from a trauma that have undergone massive fluid resuscitation, over the course of their intensive care stay, they may become very edematous and swollen. Loading the tissue with a water supplement may cause edema. Um, these don't carry oxygen, and that is key for uh, maintaining or reducing the damage uh, secondary to shock states. We want to make sure that oxygen gets to the end organs. However, in crystalloids, you can't do this. 
Also with massive fluid resuscitation, you may see diluting of clotting factors. Their bloods have the inability or lack the ability now to clot. This will worsen the situation and may cause bleeding worse. How about blood? Blood uh, is more significant. We use it for more significant hemorrhages. Uh, we're talking here class 3 and class 4 hemorrhaging where they're hypotensive, tachycardic. They may not have responded to crystalloid therapy. Type and cross-match blood is ideal, but we can give O-negative blood in women of childbearing age or O-positive blood to men and women that are not of childbearing age. We can do that emergently, and we do that frequently in the emergency department in our trauma center. It's excellent because it carries oxygen, and that's what we like. And this is what's so much better about blood than the crystalloids, and it stays within the vascular compartment. It doesn't leak out. Uh, into the tissues, doesn't diffuse across the vascular space as the crystalloids do. Blood has limitations though as well. It's limited in supply. The amount of time that uh, you can store it is also limited. It has to be refrigerated. It carries infectious risks, most prominently hepatitis C. Carry risk for transfusion reactions. People will have allergic reactions to the infusion and it can suppress your immune system. So again, a little closer, but not necessarily the ideal blood. Do we have any other options? I mean, most commonly we use the crystalloids and the blood, but are there other options that we have available uh, to help us treat hypovolemic shock? Colloids. Colloids, uh, we have albumin, which is a protein purified from human blood, and synthetic colloids including hetastarch, pentaspan, and dextran. These aren't used commonly in the pre-hospital arena for hypovolemic shock, but in some cases uh, in trauma centers uh, these are used. How do colloids work? Well if you can imagine looking at this picture, the inside, the lower half of the picture is inside the um, vascular space, the outside is with, uh, I'm sorry, the outside is within the vascular space, that's the upper half of the picture. The lower half of the picture is uh, in, the in the cells or the interstitial space. So what do we want to do? We want to maximize fluid inside the vascular space. So although the picture shows sodium molecules, we'll pretend those are albumin or one of the colloid structures. Water likes to preferentially move to places and help balance out the equation. So we have relatively more colloid in the vascular space in the upper half of the picture, which will create an oncotic force and pull water from the interstitial space, thereby increasing fluid in the vascular spaces, which we want ideally. They're able to provide more rapid restoration of circulating volume with a smaller amount of infused. So we use less colloid than we, would than, than we do with our crystalloid. More fluid stays in the blood vessel, it doesn't necessarily leak out, again because of this oncotic force bringing water into the vascular space. They're much more expensive and colloids alone have yet to show a major benefit in resuscitation. 
Currently, there is the Resuscitation Outcomes Consortium, which will be enrolling patients soon, and will be studying mixtures of hypertonic saline and hypertonic saline and dextran in traumatic brain injury patients. So some centers across the United States and pre-hospital uh, providers will be using some colloid pre-hospital. Dextran comes in a 6 and 10% solution. We see the 6 most commonly used for resuscitation. Has similar intravascular effects as albumin or protein in our starch. It's a very small risk of anaphylaxis, but it may cause some platelet dysfunction with large volumes in a 24-hour period and bleeding. Hypertonic saline. Normal saline that we use has a percentage of 0.9%. Hypertonic saline we can see at 3% or 7.5%. It's a crystalloid solution, so the concentration of salt, the sodium, is much higher in the fluid. It attempts to combine the benefits of both crystalloids and colloids, so more sodium in the intravascular space will bring water and draw it in. It's still unproven, but again, this is one of the protocols for the Resuscitation Outcome Consortium. The concern is that there's risk for dehydration of uh, end organs and causing electrolyte problems. A combination of hypertonic saline and dextran, um, able to rapidly expand the intravascular uh, volume without fluid leaking out. But again, these don't meet the ideal fluid by, not, by lacking the ability to carry oxygen. How about hemoglobin or blood? This is the hemoglobin molecule. It's made up of two alpha and two beta polypeptide chains with an iron group in the middle. And it hangs on to our oxygen molecules and releases them to the end organ. It's a great oxygen carrier, has a high capacity for oxygen itself. It can withstand rigorous purification and viral inactivation procedures, um, and it has a prolonged shelf life when it's free hemoglobin itself, though, has some toxicity. So we don't give just free hemoglobin to patients, we actually give packed red blood cells. Free hemoglobin rapidly dissociates into its uh, um, alpha and beta dimers. They're quickly filtered out into the, by the kidney and can have toxic effects on the kidney causing some renal insufficiency. Blood substitutes. This is another study that will be ongoing. There's several products that are out there that are being studied. One would be polyheme, the other is HBOC. Um, the quest for a blood substitute dates long, long ago. We've seen mixtures of wine, water, honey, all of those were infused through an IV to attempt to substitute volume uh, for blood. But over time, it was recognized that oxygen needs to be delivered. And we've come up recently with hemoglobin-based oxygen carriers. They're modified to reduce the clearance and kidney toxicity, so they are hemoglobin but they're structurally changed to reduce that toxicity as mentioned uh, from hemoglobin alone. We see cross-linking of the alpha and beta dimers. It's more stable. It doesn't dissociate as regular hemoglobin does. 
The chains are a little bit longer. And they have some advantages. They're readily available without cross-matching. They have a very long shelf life, 18 months to two years. You can be storing these at room temperature. Because they're synthesized and polymerized, they have a very low risk of uh, disease transmission. They have a lower viscosity than blood itself, than packed red blood cells. So they may perfuse areas better. They're not found to be immunosuppressive and they would reduce the strain on blood banks. They do have some disadvantages, however. They have a relatively short half-life in the body. They do interfere with some lab tests, uh, so when using these products, trauma center labs need to be recalibrated uh, to handle lab tests drawn on patients that have this blood substitute. They may cause some vasoconstriction, and they may not carry the important antioxidant enzymes that we'll see with packed red cells. And currently, they haven't gone through the appropriate clinical trials to become widely accepted. We do see these, uh, these products, specifically HBOC201, used in Europe and South Africa in um, orthopedic as well as cardiothoracic surgery patients regularly. However, in the United States, we're in phase three trials uh, currently to study these in the pre-hospital setting for our trauma victims. So studies are underway, but they're not readily available. How about perfluorocarbons? These are clear, colorless, odorless, and inert uh, liquids. It's similar to liquid Teflon. Interestingly, this, uh, this compound has a very high oxygen carrying capacity, two to five times more than blood when the liquid is saturated with oxygen, and it also has the ability to carry carbon dioxide. You must prepare it as an emulsion So you need to expose the perfluorocarbon molecules to high pressures of oxygen in order to load the PFC molecule. So patients need to be on high flow oxygen or the PFC needs to be prepped before it's given. The half-life in the vascular compartment is roughly 24 hours and it's eventually exhaled and released from the So. In comparison to size, this is just a rough diagram how your red blood cell looks. They're much smaller in the aqueous phase than your red blood cells. For those that have seen the movie The Abyss, uh, perfluorocarbons were used for the deep sea diving that the uh, Navy diver drowned himself in to be able to do the deep sea diving. We see a rat here in the perfluorocarbon, which is the bottom 80% of the, the beaker. This also demonstrates that it's much more dense than water. Water will sit on top of the perfluorocarbon. The advantages, it's compatible with all blood types. It doesn't have antigens. It's shelf life of two years. Uh, there's no risk of bloodborne infection and it may be acceptable to alternative, as, as an alternative to people who object to getting blood transfusions. Jehovah's Witness, for example. The disadvantages, however, is that you need to have 100% inspired oxygen to saturate those molecules. It may interfere with certain lab tests. Again, labs may need to be calibrated, and it's not cleared for human use yet. But uh, bench trials in animal studies are, are ongoing, 
and this appears to be uh, uh, promising and potentially useful in the future. So in conclusion, the appropriate recognition and management of shock is a critical skill of the EMS provider. Again, know the four types of shock and know how to differentiate them. Cardiogenic, obstructive, distributive, and hypovolemic. We have significant limitations uh, on available fluid resuscitations. However, studies are ongoing to improve that. But in the pre-hospital setting, unless you are a nurse or a critical care paramedic, you'll be using crystalloids. Or unless you're involved with the Resuscitation Outcome Consortium trial, you may be involved in giving colloid. And then new resuscitation fluids. They're the final stages of development. Uh, phase three trials are ongoing. Uh, bench research is being conducted. And in the very near future, I see that EMS agencies will be using uh, different pre-hospital fluids. Thank you for uh, listening to this podcast uh, from the Department of Emergency Medicine. Again, my name is Chris Russi, and I appreciate your time. Thank you very much.